Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Like when we talk about raising a billion or $10 billion, that's not so that we can drive out competitors or build massive network effect. It's just, it's just what we need to do. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly podcast from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we have a tech and Silicon Valley OG on the show. Sunil Patel is our guest and Sunil has come on to talk about his new company. It's called Spring Free EV, which is an electric vehicle financing startup with a really interesting model and Sunil is fascinating because... Just an amazing breadth of experience he brings to this idea, and it's his kind of journey in tech starts all the way back at AOL, uh, where he was the first and only internet product manager at um, America Online, as it was then, back when this whole weird internet thing was just getting started nobody really knew where it was going to go. He went on to found another couple companies, he went through the dot-com bust, the first clean tech 1.0 bust navigated the financial crisis, started a ride-sharing company way back in 2011. It was called Sidecar, just as Uber and Lyft were tooling up to try to take over the world. Sidecar ended up getting suffocated by those companies. Um, That's perhaps why you may not have heard of it. That company shut down, I believe, in 2015. It, it, It didn't work for a lot of reasons, which we'll get into. What we can see is that Sunil has been around the block a couple times. He's had a bunch of successes, some failures, which is what makes this new company so interesting. Because what Spring Free does is make it easier for managers of big vehicle fleets or other people who drive a lot to switch to an electric vehicle. And he does this by charging a per mile fee for these cars. So there's no upfront fee, there's no lease, none of that. In other words, if you drive a lot, Spring Free will give you the keys to an EV and charge you for usage. And the whole idea behind this is to accelerate electric vehicle adoption because of course EVs are expensive, which is a blocker. And so by taking this really interesting FinTech approach to what is effectively a financing problem, the goal is to unlock what remains one of the still, one of the most consequential avenues when you talk about addressing climate change, which is reducing the number of petrol and diesel cars on the road and replacing them with electrics. So Sunil, he's raised some money from some billionaire backers, from Reid Hoffman to Mark Pincus, the founder of Zynga. And I think you'll just find what he has to say really fascinating, um, not least because he has you know some of these hard lessons he's learned over the years. He's applying them to this kind of new waterfront. And you know it's obviously a big opportunity, high stakes. And he's just got a great story to tell. I think you're really going to get a lot out of this. So with that, I will hand you over now to my conversation with Sunil Patel, the founder of Spring Free EV. Enjoy. There's a lot I want to cover, but if we could just start from the top. EVs, what has got you into um, this whole world, starting a company around it? You know, what's the what's the origin story? Yeah, well, um, the idea of using a, a kind of financial fintech innovation to make uh, vehicles more affordable is something that's been kicking around in my head for a long time, uh, more than a decade. There were three things that came together to had me realize, oh, I should go do something. One was, do you remember the Day of Orange here in the Bay Area? I wrote a whole piece around it. For for listeners who are not in the Bay Area, it was the day where the sun never came out. The sky was like a post-apocalyptic orange. And my son, who was three at the time, said, when I was dropping him off at preschool, he said, Dada, why is it still nighttime? 
And it was just like, oh my God, this is grim. Because of the wildfires, of course, this is all the ash in the air that did all this. Well, like you, it made a huge impression on me. And uh, that and other wildfire seasons here in the Bay Area, uh, I started asking myself, what more can I do? I have been a climate investor and um, an activist and um, uh, been on boards of companies. Uh, like, There's a lot of things that I've done to, mm. to try to make a difference. Um, but really, I realized that, well, there's a reason why I decided that I need to activate my skills in uh, being an operator and being an entrepreneur, uh, my you know, decades of experience, and really like my optimism right? and apply that to the task. But there are two other big things that happened. One is I, I looked at the calculations. I, um, a little more than 10 years ago, I did a study called the Gigaton Throwdown that was designed to look at how do we scale up different hmm. approaches to clean energy. Great name, by uh, the way, the Gigaton Throwdown. Like yeah, that. thanks. Uh, <laughs> so I had some kind of experience around what kind of scale do we need in order to have a climate level impact. And what I found is that, oh, wow, we can get to gigaton level impact through electric vehicles and that we're not there yet. Like we're the current trajectory of all this demand from all the subsidies and all the public infrastructure, none of that is enough to get to net zero by, by 2050 for just for ground transportation. Even with what GM and Ford and VW were saying, VW said 85 billion, I think they're, they're all tens of billions and talking about the end of the internal combustion engine and the kind of the great electrification after a century of the internal combustion engine. It's not enough and it's not fast enough. Right. To get to net zero, there's a gap. We need to get to about 200 million electric vehicles on the road worldwide by... 2030. That's only eight years away. And then continue to ramp up from there. You know, by then we're still not selling uh, only just about half the cars around the world would be new cars would be electric cars on that trajectory. That's a huge change. It is a huge change. Because when you think, because for my sins, I, when I used to live in London, I covered all things, energy and resources and talking about this, you know, probably seven, eight years ago, and a lot of the arguments around, well, you know, the typical life of a car is 10 to 15 years. So even if tomorrow, all electric cars, it was every car was electric, it would still take 10 to 15 years before you can turn over the whole fleet just because people aren't going to sell a perfectly good car, even if it's using gas. You got it. And that is one of the reasons why we have to get to such huge volumes by 2030. Right. In order to get to net zero. So why is net zero by 2050 matter? Because when everyone talks about maintaining temperatures at just 1.5 degrees Celsius rise, all of that presumes we get to net zero by 2050, and then we go negative on carbon after 2050. And that sounds like it's far away, but it is not. Yeah. For, for reasons like that, because the cars that we put out on the road are going to be there for a while. Yep. So it was that was an important aha moment. I actually wrote a blog about it on I think it was called Can MPAs, which is the the our first product mileage purchase agreement. Can an MPA get to a gigaton, or can it have climate impact or something like that? There was a third component, which was I kind of looked around and said, like, who's going to do this? <laughs> like, who has the experience? Who has the background? Who has the and I was like, um. That's me. Like, <laughs> we are the ones we've been waiting for. It's funny. I've, I don't know how many entrepreneurs I've talked to who always have this moment where they're like, there's this big problem I've come kind of come upon, but you know, I'm just going to look around for like kind of the adult in the room or the person who's going to do it. And then they keep looking around and they keep looking around and they're like, oh, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll do it. I wasn't looking for the adult in the room. I am the adult in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one that other people bring in to be the adult. Right, like I, right, right. I was under no illusion about that. I was just, yeah, look, I, I've, I've tried to give away this idea for 10 years and it's, uh, it is, it was, it was an important realization mm. that like those three things came together. Apocalyptic experiences, realization that we can use fintech innovation to get to climate level impact and realizing yeah, I can do this. Not only I can do this, I must do this. Right. 
I, I am the person to go do this. I, and for those of you who don't know, I, yeah. So, so this is perfectly leads to yeah. So we can go back a decade and talk about the early years of ride sharing and what that was, because that obviously provides very useful context. Sure. So I, I incubated Get Around, and even before Get Around, I was on the board of one of the first car sharing organizations back in the early two thousands. Ride sharing in the early two thousands. Car sharing. Car Very sharing. common confusion between the two. It, right, 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 right. And right. to be honest, I'm to blame for that. <laughs> I coined the term ride sharing to refer to what we do today. And I coined it because we had already been doing car sharing. And I was like, oh, well, it's kind of like car sharing. You're using other people's cars, but you're getting a ride. So it's ride sharing. Right. Yeah. So car sharing, uh, I was involved in the early days. Uh, you know, there's get around, but then I, later I got a law passed in California to help enable peer-to-peer car sharing uh, that's been copied in several states. And then later, uh, gosh, two or three years later, I started Sidecar as the first ride-sharing company. And uh, the TNC, the Transportation Network Company, rules that California made ride-share fully 100% legal versus kind of being in a gray area. Yeah, uh, Those were based on, on things that we developed. So my point is, yeah, like this has been a long time coming and I, I've been involved in it. So Sidecar was 2011, you started that? Yeah, yeah. And that was, I think Uber started 2010 and Lyft was around the same time. It was all, it was this kind of explosion of... Lyft started right after us. Before that, they were called Zimride. That's right. And their ride-sharing product was launched, uh, I don't know, maybe four months after us. Right, right. It's just interesting looking at that industry now. You know, Uber is still on the road, so to speak, to profitability. It's a hard old business. Yes, it is. Trying to actually make something that actually washes its face financially. <laughs> <laughs> I started into car sharing and ride sharing because I thought that efficiency uh, could make a huge difference in reducing greenhouse gases. Mm. And sort of that same realization that you were talking about earlier about, oh, it's you know 16 years, I think is the average lifetime of a US car, that... Because of that, you needed something that could move the needle much faster. Mm. I wasn't alone. Lots of other folks, uh, including other founders of these companies, thought that car sharing and ride sharing could make a big difference. What we did not fully account for is that the rebound effect, which is basically that when things get more efficient, people use more of them. And I remember being asked this question, like, well, what happens when you make it easier to move around, won't people move around more? And my answer at the time was, well, people don't want to spend all their time in a car. Yeah, They got better things to do than sit around driving around. But I think I did not fully appreciate that neighborhoods would change, that people mm. would move to different neighborhoods because they had easier transportation. The mission, for example, has become much more desirable because it used to be a kind of transportation desert. Parking was impossible. Transit was terrible. And now people can live there much more easily because of ride sharing. Similarly, car sharing uh, in the early going, we thought that it would reduce car usage. But instead, both, both these services, car sharing and ride sharing, have either been flat to negative on mm. the use of the vehicles. And then, and then there's a, another dynamic, which is when you come up with an efficiency innovation, other people in other industries use it for their own purposes. So we all don't think anything of like, oh, I want pizza from Pizzeria, you know, from Delfina. There's a fantastic pizza place here in, in San Francisco. In the old days, you could never get a delivery from them, right? Because they didn't do that. But now, no big deal. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll deliver to you using whatever it is, DoorDash or whoever. And that set of innovation or, or single day delivery on Amazon, like those kinds of capabilities are kind of adaptations, adoptions of the ride-sharing style mm. innovation, but for a slightly different purpose. It was like I had this set of reflections after Sidecar in the sort of uh, 2016, 17 timeframe. And I was like, okay, that, that would also kind of set the frame. Like, okay, it's kind of a lesson learned, mm. one of the many out of, out of that experience. Before we get to Spring Free, because I think it's super interesting, is there a reason or or was it just like the avalanche of money that Uber was able to raise that why Sidecar didn't work or what why didn't it work? 
You know, I think um, one of the many things I have learned is when you have a mistake or a problem or a, a failure, to do a non-emotional as much as you can. Mm. <laughs> There's always emotion around it, right? But to do a, as as calm a, a reflection on it as possible. And also to ask layers of questions. So yes, the immediate question was they raised a lot more money. And when you have raised a lot of money in, a, in an industry that, as you point out, loses money for a very long time and yes. is going to lose money for a long time, you must have the most money or you will lose. Well, why did they raise more money and why did Lyft raise more money? And I think there you have to ask the question of like, well, Lyft got out in front of us in customer traction mm. and like, okay, well, why did they get out in front of us in front of it for customer traction? And I'll tell you, it was, it was that pink mustache I, mean, I was gonna. I was literally gonna say you guys needed the pink mustache, but I was. That was a joke. <laughs> uh, it was not. It's not a joke. Really, they went from behind us, way behind us. I mean, granted, we're talking about a period of months, to significantly in front of us and growing faster because they simply had a lot of visibility. Like big fuzzy pink mustache driving down the road. You're asking, what the heck is that? Right. Our cars were invisible. Well, so just so people know, because Lyft isn't over in the UK, never has been. Back in the days, Lyft, when it was really going head to head with Uber, had these giant pink fuzzy mustaches that they would give out to drivers to put on the front of their cars. And I always just saw them and I was like, that just seems so kind of, it's kind of funny and kind of ridiculous, but I didn't think much of it, but it's just funny. Some, I guess when you're in a land grab like that, things that seem small can be quite big. Yeah. And really, in the beginning, they were going after us because mm. one of our engineers overheard, before Lyft launched, overheard what we presume were, they must have been somebody at Lyft because they were basically complaining about how are we ever going to catch up with Sidecar. Right. Like, I, I give them credit for, it was a kind of a, I happen to know it was a little bit of a whim that they did that thing. It wasn't yeah. that purposeful. But, you know, credit to them. Yeah. And they were willing to go there. So, but listen, the lesson for me is visibility and awareness counts a lot. That marketing and brand and positioning matters a lot. Yeah, it's one of the important lessons out of out of Sidecar because I was frankly not that attentive to those those topics, and yeah, had my ass handed to me as a result. Right. So spring free. So you've raised the money. Who have you raised the money from? What's the big idea? you know, when does it actually launch, launch, kind of what's the goal? So Spring Free EV is, it's a new company. The idea is make electric vehicles radically more affordable. Hmm. And by making them radically more affordable, get the adoption rate to be so fast that we can get to gigaton scale impact. Right. How are we going to do that? We're going to take advantage of the three economic disruptions of the electric car. First, they cost less to operate than a regular gas car. Second, they interact with the grid. And when they interact with the grid in a smart way, they can get paid to do that. Right. And third, electric cars last much longer than gasoline-powered cars. And that third advantage magnifies the advantage of the first two. In fact... How much longer? Or do we know yet? We don't know quite yet, but... What we do know is that the number of moving parts in an electric car is dramatically less. Yeah. Like hundreds and hundreds of fewer moving parts than, than a, a gas bike. Orders of magnitude, yeah. Yeah. Maybe not orders of magnitude, but a lot. Order. Like, like we're talking like 33% <laughs> fewer. Right, right. Um, which is a lot. And it's a simpler design, hmm. right? There's no transmission, for example. And of course, the battery is the big variable. Yep. But one of the interesting insights about batteries is that while they are warranted based on miles, that's not how they degrade. A battery degrades on charge cycles. Hmm. So if you drive your car, whatever, 20 miles every day and then charge it up every night, that's a charge cycle. But if you drive your car 200 miles every day and charge it up, that's also a charge cycle. So order of magnitude difference in the number of miles, but the same number of charge cycles. So batteries could last, you know, order of magnitude more miles than uh, are kind of currently advertised you know, the average person can't, battery cycling is not the kind of thing that people keep track of in their heads, um, <laughs> but, but miles are. And so that's yeah. why everyone talks about miles. 
Yeah, so it'll last much longer. But you know, the other interesting thing about this is that because they last longer, it magnifies our advantages, these other two economic advantages. Mm. And here's another interesting insight that we've developed uh, recently is that those advantages actually increase over time. So think about your the cost advantage the, of operating an electric car versus a gas-powered car. Yep. The fuel advantage and the maintenance advantage are better clunker versus clunker than brand new versus brand new. Like your old clunker gas car gets worse gas mileage and breaks down more often than your brand new one. It's like an old person, right? Not to be too crude about it, but like the older you get, the more time, the more things go wrong with your body, the more time you spend in the hospital, the more bills you have to pay to keep mm. on the road, so to speak. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I don't know if you want to use that in your deck. Use a picture of an old person. <laughs> so i don't yeah i don't even know how to make that into a metaphor with electric uh, moving cars. swiftly on anyway I, I, I understand what you're saying and then also this idea of the virtual power plant in other words the idea that you the electric car can serve all these huge numbers of electric cars I and mean, they're going to represent the largest store of electrons ever mm. and meantime the grid needs to get to zero carbon and how's it going to do that it needs to rely on cheap electricity which is intermittent so like bringing those three together, solar winds that are intermittent and, and batteries in EVs is one of the big challenges, but it's also one of the biggest economic opportunities. And that value also increases over time because today there's not really that much value, but yeah, down the road, because of regulation, because of technology, uh, that value will be greater. So these two economic advantages are like appreciating rather than depreciating, which is the traditional way that you think about an automobile. So what is the model for spring free then? So what do we do? You did say there's going to be like a couch. So it is. I mean, and I'm very I know. comfortable. So I'm not, this I'm is not an elevator, dude. Yeah. This is not like, this is couch time. What's the couch pitch? Not the elevator. Well, pitch. Yeah, it looks like you're sitting on the floor. So you're very comfortable. I am on the floor. <laughs> um, yeah. So here's what we do. Our first product that takes advantage of that first advantage, that lower cost of operation uh, we call the mileage purchase agreement. Yeah. And it's pretty simple. We charge cents per mile. Think anywhere from 10 cents up to as much as 30 cents per mile for use of the car. And we use that revenue line to make the capital cost more affordable. And we're collecting that cents per mile for the life of the vehicle. Okay. And that's that's largely how we get to a lower cost for the vehicle. So that is immutable, whatever the the level is, ten cents, fifteen cents, whatever. That's just I wouldn't call it immutable. We have varied that pricing depending on the market, right? And we'll, we'll talk a little bit, I'm sure, at some point about who the current market is and who the mm. future market is. But yeah, so that's that's one product. The virtual power plant idea we don't yet have, but is a kind of upcoming capability that electric cars will have. And we, of course, are, are working on that as well. Right. So yeah, like a mileage purchase agreement, you'd pay a monthly fee and the people who are using it today are they're, they're paying a monthly fee and they're paying per mile. We are going after high mileage drivers. So often when I tell people this idea, they're like, oh yeah, that'd be great for my car. I don't drive very much. I'm like, no, we don't want you. Right. Because it probably <laughs> wouldn't terrible. make sense. Right. Yeah. No, I mean... Look, an electric car that you park in the garage will never pencil for TCO. An electric car that you drive all the time, that you're putting like 100,000 miles a year on, pencils very quickly. Mm. So we want those cars and those situations where people are driving a lot. And if you kind of take the intersection of drive a lot and put a lot of miles on and there are electric cars today, which is basically sedans. There aren't really a lot of SUVs or pickup trucks. That intersection is car sharing and ride sharing and gig delivery. And so that's our first set of customers are fleet managers that do car sharing, not ride sharing, but car sharing. Taxi companies. No. These are folks who are typically anywhere from five cars to maybe a hundred cars. Gotcha. And they are on platforms like Turo or Get Around. Mm. Uh, or hire car, which is a, a small one that's that actually is focused on the gig economy, and so the end customer is a is a leisure 
travel or someone like you can use Turo uh, when you're on vacation and they're yeah. both Turo and get around operate here as well as in um, a few overseas locations. Yep. So um, yeah, it's like Airbnb for cars. That's gotcha. the simplest yeah. way to explain it. So fantastic that that is the explanation and everyone's like, oh yeah. <laughs> it's an indication of, a, of the time we are in the kind of the innovation cycle where the previous innovation is the kind of shorthand for the next one. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of these folks in the United States. Turo just released their S1 and uh, in it they say that there's 85,000 hosts. Wow. And we know that you know, from not just this marketplace, from many other marketplaces that usually it's about 20% that end up representing most of the volume. And they tend to run as businesses rather than hobbyists. So your neighbor yeah. might have a car out on Toro, but that's not our target. Our target are the people who've said, hey, I can make a living at this. I can, I'm can. i going to quit my job and go run a fleet of 10 cars. Right. And so, yeah, that, those are our customers right now. And that's our product that we call InstaFleet, which, you know, kind of the name is what it's all about. You can quickly expand your fleet. And by the way, this is almost always displacing gas-powered cars, which right. is part of what I love about it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And so is the idea then that there is no, like you're not having to like, you know, put money down for a lease or buy a car or what, is it just this kind of the monthly, the monthly fee plus whatever the mileage is? So is the idea that yeah. you can kind of do that instantly and get five cars or whatever. Yeah, that's right. So there's no personal guarantees. There is a security deposit, but there's no uh, down payment. So it's a very affordable way to expand your fleet and without you know messing up your personal credit. Got you. Uh, and it's the reason why we're getting really strong traction there. So that's car sharing as distinct from ride sharing, where... We have announced something that won't launch until the fall, and that is a, a something we call free EV. And free EV is a the ability to get, if you're a high mileage driver, really only if you're a high mileage driver, you can get a car for just cents per mile, as low as thirty cents per mile. And you know that's also done really well. We've got well over five hundred signups. We get we announced five hundred signups after one week. So anyway, that's a whole different segment because it's just one, typically one driver, one car. Yeah. But what they have in common is they also use sedans mm. and they also do a lot of miles and they make money on their cars. So this is like the beginning of our market entry. Got you. Um, we will do more, but you know, you got to start with a niche that really, really wants you. And we've definitely found that niche. So do you, where are you sourcing the cars from? Given that, you know, there aren't a lot of EVs around, there's obviously, there's a lot of ramping up going on, but do you have some kind of supply deals with Tesla or somebody else or how's that work? Yeah, we have supply deals with, uh, with Nissan. We have a fleet relationship with Tesla. We have a strategic partnership with Cox Automotive, which uh, listeners may not be familiar with, but it's a huge privately held company that processes more cars than anyone else, 6 million cars a year. What does processing a car mean? Well, uh, the biggest thing they do is they run the largest car auction. I see. Uh, called Mannheim. Uh, but they also have some consumer brands uh, like Kelly Blue Book and oh, um, yeah. uh, Auto Trader, things like that. They, they have a lot of their brand names. Are, yeah. Uh, they have a whole universe of brands. So they we, we have a partnership with them for being able to secure the cars and logistics for nationwide ability to operate 
condition the cars and to deliver the cars and deal with paperwork. There's uh, a lot of things that that you got to do in order to be able to manage a large car fleet. And Cox has been a, a fantastic partner in that. So yeah, that's how we get supply. And then we're also working with other OEMs that we haven't announced yet to get supply from the factory and continue to talk to more. Was it hard to line up or do you have multiple financial partners or banks or what have you to kind of line up that the financing lines? Because it's obviously it's a different type of model. How did that kind of come about or how what was that process like? You know, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. We at the time, I thought it was so novel, but I think we're actually following a fintech playbook, which is start out with high net worth individuals for the financing, figure out a way that that they benefit, you know, kind of preferentially because they're individual investors, which we've done. Then move to kind of institutional capital, yep. which we are in the process of doing. And then ultimately either go to public markets for, you know, there's debt offerings, uh, asset-backed securities that are uh, that are offered in the, in the debt markets or become a bank or buy a bank to get to very low cost of capital. And that progression is uh, very much what we have in mind. So far, what we've actually delivered on and are executing on is individual capital. So we figured out some very interesting tax advantages and tax structures that provide a great return for an individual. And we've used that plus the fact that when you're providing capital for these cars, you're having a significant greenhouse gas impact. Mm. You know, every car that we deploy, because they're high mileage cars and they're you know almost always displacing a gas powered car, every car is displacing about nine tons of CO2 per year. And just for like, what does that mean? <laughs> like the average US household emits less than eight tons per year. Right. So it's a, it's a lot. It's a big impact. Right. So anyway, that's the starting point is individuals. We're out in market right now talking to institutional capital for asset finance. In other words, buying cars. And that's going quite well. We're, we're in the midst of kind of landing that process. And we expect that doing an ABS, uh, an asset-backed security, or we are going to try to do as soon as possible uh, we know we need to have a certain scale to do that. And what we know from solar is that Solar City did the first solar ABS. And actually, the, the guy who did that inside Solar City is an investor, uh, David Arfin. And if you can go look at those filings, they had about three years of experience mm. on those solar uh, PPAs, solar leases. So the question for us and ultimately for public investors is, you know, how much how much time do we need? This is a much, much better characterized asset class. People have been financing cars for more than a century. So it's much better understood than than solar, but it's a new style of of investment. Um, it's a new financial structure. It's got the technology overlay. Anyway, we are hopeful that we can get to ABS sooner than solar did. Got you. Got you. So how much money have you raised up to this point and who are, because you have some kind of well-known folks backing this, right? Uh, been very fortunate to get some very high profile people involved in the company. Folks like uh, Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, yep. Mark Pincus, uh, founder of Zynga, F. Williams, founder of Twitter. Uh, I already mentioned David Arfin, who, who pioneered um, solar leases, Ron Fisher at, at SoftBank, like all kinds of very interesting folks that that are involved in, in the company. We haven't disclosed the specific amount, but um, yeah, it's enough that we've deployed um, well over a hundred cars using that capital. And when did the company actually officially start? Yeah. The official uh, incorporation was July of last year. Got you. And so here we are where it, it's 2022. You have Tesla worth a trillion dollars, which is insane. You have Detroit, and every other big car making center of excellence around the world fully going all in on electrification. It feels like we're kind of on a much bigger scale um, relative to say ride sharing a decade ago. We're at the be kind of beginning of a new phase here with huge amounts of money and behavioral shifts kind of in flux. So I'm just curious from your previous experience to use your words, how do you not get your ass handed to you again? 
what <laughs> what, <laughs> what is the key to kind of because it does feel like um and people who listen to this podcast will know we're doing more and more on climate tech because it does feel like there's a big shift happening both in terms of money talent brain power institutional money um there's a big shift happening and it's kind of there's a lot of excitement and a lot of stuff happening. A lot of things are going to, there's going to be a lot of experiments. A lot of them aren't going to work. A lot of them are, but it just feels like there's a, there's a, it's very frothy and interesting right now. And you're kind of right at the, you know, at the cusp of that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm so excited that we've got all, all these things that you mentioned mm. top of the list talent. I, the fact that we've got all so many people that are excited you know, feel like they want to go do something that makes a big difference in the world. It all starts with great talent. Capital is is the second big thing. And uh, you ask, uh, how is this business defensible? Another way of saying, how do I not have my ass handed to me? <laughs> um, and uh, look, really, there is several layers to the answer. I used to be a big believer that you have to focus on the moat. I now believe you have to build a fortress there's certainly a piece of the defensibility, but you have to interlink, you have to link it up with like strong brand. You know, a strong brand by itself will not work, but it's a piece of the overthink. So what the significant piece of our defensibility is all of these fleet managers, all these car sharing hosts, uh, they, they are our customers today, mm. but they will also be uh, a channel for future offerings, like for example, free EV, which is a long-term product, not a daily or weekly product uh, rental. It's something that, you know, you're going to hold on to this car for a long time. We're going to work with these fleet managers to to deploy that product. Well, that's pretty powerful because now we already have many dozens of fleet managers around the country that we can work with to deploy it. So that's that's one and there's all kinds of things we're doing to reinforce and make their lives better and, and kind of work with them. The second is, and another important lesson out of, out of Sidecar is just do not be outraised. Like, and there is value in having the largest pool of capital. In fintech, it is especially true because we have to get to the lowest cost of capital. And we want to get to the lowest cost of capital, not just to lower our prices for everyone and to build defensive advantage, but because it's a climate imperative. Our whole reason to exist is to get to very large scale. And so everything kind of fits together. Like if we can't get to large scale, there's no point in continuing. Like right. we that's what we're all about is get to large scale. So that by itself is a form of defensibility because it's not that easy to get to large scale. And uh, once you're there, you have access to like getting to an ABS, for example, as a back security is not that easy. And once you do it, once you've built the relationships and the track record, yes, other people can do it, but they also have to be at pretty significant scale to be able to do it. There are other layers and other aspects of our fortress that'll take another old podcast to go through all the details, <laughs> but there, there, are, there are other ways that we are very consciously thinking about how do we build defensibility into the business. And I got to say, it's not just for the sake of defensibility. It is at its core driven by how do we deliver great value for our customers? That's like number one core value around it. And the number two is what I already mentioned. How do we get to large scale and have climate level impact? So, you know, I said earlier, I've been trying to give away this idea for 10 years. Yeah. Well, if Elon Musk had gone around for 10 years trying to convince the car companies to, you know, make electric cars, nothing would happen. Yep. They'd all still be making crappy compliance cars. The reason why it's happened is because Tesla is worth a trillion dollars. And so now boardrooms are like, wait a minute. Okay, that flaky little company that we thought was going to go away, uh, it's worth more than you and all our competitors combined. Yeah. That's where we need to be. We need to be in that position where the boardrooms of companies that today, frankly, they look at electric vehicle financing as minor and not that important. Yeah. They need to be saying, wow, spring-free EV is worth more than us and our competitors combined. What are we doing to to stand up something that, you know, is is like that? That's where we're headed. 
So just thinking about the company, it feels like there's a there's a brand that is very specific to kind of people who drive cars, fleet managers, et cetera. And then it's almost like it's a bank slash financial institution, which is I'm just trying to I'm trying to kind of conceptualize how this like how this would be seen on the public markets, for example. Are you seen as like a a bank or a consumer brand? that helps people get into electric cars or, or both. It's a, it's, it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition. Um, I don't know if, how you think about that or is it both? There are examples out there that I think are instructive. Uh, Affirm, Sunrun. I mean, these are companies that have B2B presence and they have a consumer awareness and a consumer brand. They serve as financial entities, but they also have a very strong technology component that is fundamental to their existence and the ability to deliver their product. You know, those are examples. There are many others. We are a fintech company, and that means we're we're a platform that enables capital to be channeled into specific demand of a product that we have formulated and that is made possible through our technology. And that general description fits Affirm and Sunrun and Lending Club and SoFi and on and on and on. Before I let you go, I just want to kind of zoom out a bit because you're like a, a tech OG an internet OG, if you will. So if you could just give people a quick sense of kind of your involvement going back, because I think you were early days of AOL, if I'm not mistaken. Because I also want to just get a sense of, I mean, you've seen this whole internet movie play out, right? And now they're the biggest companies of the world are tech companies. It seems to me we are at the cusp of a new wave when you have people like Stanley Fink at... BlackRock saying, you know, the next thousand billionaires are going to be climate tech billionaires. It does feel like, again, going back to the idea of this big secular shift, this kind of awakening and all, you know, the capital markets, et cetera, around climate and just trying to kind of put that in context of what you have seen in your career, going back to the early days of tech, that weird thing called the internet, what that has turned into. And if there's any parallels you can see or kind of comparison you can make. Yeah. Cool question. That's yet another whole couch talk. <laughs> but in brief, um, I was lucky enough to land the job as the internet product manager at a company called America Online before it was most more, you know, officially changed to AOL. Right. Um, back when there was just one internet product manager, that was it. And I kind of one ran internet it. product manager at an internet company. That's fantastic. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's because I had been messing around with this strange new thing called the internet at this government think tank, this congressional agency that I worked at at the time, office of technology assessment. Yeah. And, and, you know, jumping from government to private sector is usually pretty hard anyway. So I, I, it was very early, very early, Uh, you know, it was the days of prodigy and CompuServe and, uh, (laughs) and, and America online and 56 K dial up. Yeah. And 56, 56K was fast. Yeah. That was the fast modem. So I experienced and lived through and started a company at the beginning of the sort of dot-com craziness. I sold that company, actually started it with Mark Pincus, who uh, went on to, to start Zynga, as well as many other companies. And then sold that company and uh, uh, moved out to the Bay Area and started my second company, Brightmail. And that was Interestingly enough, also during the dot-com boom where I, uh, I watched a lot of my friends go through that crazy rise and then crash. And weirdly enough, Brightmail actually did really well after the crash. Oh. Our business picked up. Which was, we were an email security company. And, right, uh, right, right. So that was kind of, you know, boom bust cycle one. Yep. And then after selling uh, Brightmail, we built that company to profitability, filed an S1. We were ready to go public. Got a great offer from Symantec and sold. I started entering cleantech investing back in, um, that would be now the mid-2000s. Ooh, yikes. <laughs> yeah, that mostly did not turn out so well. So boom bust cycle number two. Yeah. Uh, quickly followed by, uh, you know, 2008, which was more secular, you know, economy-wide boom bust. And so... You know, interestingly enough, the company that was most successful out of my investments in Cleantech 1.0 is a fintech company, uh, Solar Mosaic. Mm. And of course, back then we didn't call them fintech companies, but 
That kind of following the evolution of that company has um, deeply influenced my mm. thinking about this company and kind of what are the leverage points in climate tech. Right. I would say one other important thing that's shaped my thinking is that gigaton throwdown study mm. where we looked at, uh, and this is, you know, recently big study. We had, I don't know, maybe 20 or so people out of academia and another 20 or so out of industry that uh, work together to try to figure out how do we, how do we scale up? What are the obstacles to scaling up to meaningful impact? And we defined it as one gigaton of mm. carbon dioxide reduction within a decade. And the, the pathways that, we could see clearly could get there were solar and wind, which has yep. turned out to be correct. Uh, and then we identified the obstacles and the others. And the reason I say all that is that there's a lot of focus in climate world, climate tech, climate investing on, you know, what's the, what's the big breakthrough idea that's going to whatever, some new technology that's going to get us there. And I think that's, there's a role for some of these breakthrough technologies but they are mostly things that need to start being deployed in like 2040. Mm. Carbon drawdown reduction, like whether it's cement or, the, or, or direct air capture or all of those kinds of technologies need to start being deployed um, at scale in that time frame. But you know, first, we got to get to net zero and then we got to go below yeah. in order to stabilize the climate. So getting to net zero, we have the technology, we have the macro technology, the, the, the atoms, <laughs> all right, we've got electric cars. They are on a learning curve. We have photovoltaic. That's on a learning curve. We have wind. It's on a learning curve. It's getting cheaper as we increase the volume. Yeah. What's missing are the financial and information technology tools to weave it together. And honestly, that's one of the lessons. Look, one of the lessons out of Cleantech 1.0 is that building a big, successful electric car company is actually possible. And that's easily the biggest success. Yeah. But the other big successes are fintech companies, you know, Sunruns and Mosaics of the world, Good Leap, all the rest that have proven that proper coordination of information and money can move markets. Yeah. So anyway, I think that's, there's huge leverage. Like we, especially kind of Silicon Valley culture, we are deeply immersed in the power of information technology and how it can totally transform the world. And I, I do think that we, as a, as a broader community, it pays to continue to lean into that, that power rather than think that it's going to be some new anode or whatever. Those technologies do need to exist, but I personally am not excited about betting against someone else's learning curve. Yeah. Learning curves are incredibly powerful. They are incremental and yet over time, those you know, five percent a year, ten percent a year improvements are revolutionary over time, and uh, they're they're basically slower versions of Moore's law. Well, it's funny. I like I said, I, I used to cover energy in the UK, and I remember ten years ago writing about solar as this like heavily subsidized kind of boondoggle that just was so wildly uncompetitive, and now it's come down ninety percent. Right. You know, and now it's like uh, it's the single biggest source of new energy installations in America, you know, and that's, that's, as you say, it's been kind of, it's been steady, steady, steady. And then all of a sudden it's kind of a revolution. You're like, oh my goodness. Wow. The power of compounding returns. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Given all of your, the ups and downs of your career, I usually ask this question to everybody I have on this pod, which is what was your worst day of work? I imagine you must have something that kind of bubbles up of just like a, a flashbulb moment. I've had I've had some extraordinary <laughs> bad days at work. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, a few have involved uh, either sort of risks of physical violence, which oh, wow. that's that is like not the kind of stuff you want to. No, that's a bad day. No, and in one case, actual physical violence. Um, oh my goodness! But sticking to the this theme that we've been on. I got to say, one of the worst days was learning that uh, that Lyft had raised a huge round from Andreessen. Mm. Uh, like that was a, that was a, that was a that was a bad day because that was kind of a death knell for you guys. It turns out, yes, right. Uh, we didn't necessarily know it at the time, but we certainly knew that that it was bad news. Right, right, right. Hence the uh, the need to um, get big and get and get funding as much as possible as quickly as possible. But you have, I mean, it's a different world now. Obviously, you have SoftBanks and Tigers and people who are writing to 
willing to write very big checks and kind of choose winners and almost kind of make them so if at all possible by just you know giving them so much money that other people are scared to try yeah money is uh well look especially in fintech like i said earlier in some of these earlier network effect companies i think there was a desire to just use money to build network to be so big that the network effect was impossible to overcome to also just frankly drive competitors uh away or or out and now I mean, in the case of fintech, it's almost a necessary part. Like when we talk about raising a billion or $10 billion, that's not so that we can drive out competitors or build massive network effect. It's just it's just what we need to do. That's just what's required. Right, right, right. Well, I wish you luck. I think it's a fascinating company at a fascinating time. I think there's going to be lots of really interesting stuff happening. And it feels like the electrification of kind of everything is going to be frustratingly slow in some ways and blindingly fast in others. Well said. But we shall see. We we shall see. We just have to get it out to the the ninety nine percent rather than the one percent, which is you know, you and me are getting our electric cars and our induction t- <laughs> uh, cooktops, but you know, we got to get it out to the ninety nine percent. Correct. Correct. Well, look, thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great being here. Thank you so much. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Sunil for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors, your enemies, your frenemies, your loved ones, anyone, everyone. Um, It always helps when you spread the word. So thank you, thank you, always. This week in the Sunday Times, I'll be writing about, believe it or not, Elon Musk and some other social media stuff. So do check that out at thetimes.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Thank you, thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.